Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for being here. It's so lovely to see such a lovely audience with so many poets, friends, poetry readers, wonderful readers. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land that we're meeting on today, and pay my respects to elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I want to follow this with a line from Mananjali Yagamba poet Ellen Van Nierven, who writes in one of their poems, I can close my eyes and you are gone. That's the power of country. I'm Felicity Plunkett. I'm a poet, critic and editor, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our guest, Dr. Anthony Joseph. So welcome, Anthony. So just as an introduction um, to this wonderful poet and to say a few things about the book. So as as you will know, Dr. Anthony Joseph is an award-winning Trinidad-born poet, novelist, academic and musician. He's the author of five poetry collections and three novels. And as a musician has released eight critically acclaimed albums and in 2020 received a Paul Hamblin Foundation Composers Award. And he is also a lecturer in creative writing at King's College London. So our focus today is his new collection, Sonnets for Albert, which was shortlisted for the Ford Prize and won the incredibly prestigious 2022 T.S. Eliot Prize for Poetry. This is a book composed mostly in sonnets, and it's a book about Anthony's father, one that Anthony, as you say in an interview, aims to unravel his mystery, to map his charisma, but mainly to collect the finite memories I had of him to hold him in a place where I could begin to understand who he was and who I am because of him and his absence. So I thought I'd just start by characterising the book a little more and starting with some of the questions that we'll come into and then we'll discuss those and, and hear some poems too. And for me, it seems interesting and important to think about this beautiful marriage in this collection of form and craft. So I'm going to open with a kind of overarching question and kind of such a big question that it's impossible to answer. But I think this is a book that's characterised by really beautiful alignment of form and concept. There's this sense in the poems of an absolute attunement to these elements so that it feels so tender in its witnessing, so achy and truthful in its portrait of loss and absence. And I feel, we were just discussing this in the green room too, I feel there's this sort of sense that the very personal grain of this work is so present, but in a funny kind of way, not foregrounded, so that the work is incredibly generous, porous, and open. 
and I've shared, been sharing these poems too with poets that I work with and students that I work with, and I find we all have this same experience of feeling a, a real sense of connection with this work. Um, so artistic highlights for me are, you know, how to write about somebody such as a father, and there are a lot of uh, poet poems and books about fathers, but someone, Anthony, who you only knew in these vivid fragments, joyful, anticipated visits, other people's stories about him, his stories about himself. And I think the, the way a poem then can contain these glimpses, impressions, that very, the very fleeting and unfixed nature of memories. Um, in particular, I really love in Jogi Road, a poem that I know we'll discuss, the idea that you write that memory has a curious sting. And in that poem, the volta or the turning point is about outlining these memories and then kind of turning back and saying, no, it wasn't that way. It was, mm -hmm. it was another way. And memories don't always match the evidence. Mm -hmm. How we witness those absences and what can't be known, and especially a father who wasn't there. Um, and I love that it's from the lens also of living with your grandmother and his mother mm -hmm. and her sense of him as her beloved son, her sugared dumpling her youngest child, as you write. So there's a sense of these two generations waiting for him with love. But his unsettled life, the loss of a parent as part of this larger set of losses around Caribbean lives, the imprint of your move from Trinidad to the UK, the loss and gain of migration, the poetics of assemblage, the jaggedness of fragments. So this is all in sonnets. That's just to give you a brief, for the people who haven't yet read the book, a brief kind of sense of what the book is about. And I'd love to bring this all, to draw all of that into a first question and to ask whether you would read us a poem and to tell us a little about the process of making sonnets for Albert. Yeah. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to start actually by just reading, I'll, I'll read a couple, a couple of poems. The, the good thing about sonnets is that they're short, so they, they don't take a long time to read. Um, so, uh, in these two poems, you, you kind of see how the, the collection started. I started writing these poems in very strict form. In, I, I was following all the rules of the sonnet, uh, and then they changed. You know, we can talk about how it changed after, mm -hmm. but it changed into something that is a little bit different. But you can see remnants of the, the original form. I was trying to write a crown of sonnets in which the last line of every poem becomes the first line of the next. Um, so you can hear it in these two poems. So the first poem is called Shame Two, and it is about visiting my father, uh, probably the last time I saw him alive, uh, visiting him in Trinidad uh, in August uh, 19, not 19, sorry, 2017. Uh, and there was a, something really curious about that visit in that he was, I felt that my father was ashamed that he was dying. Um, and it's a, it was an emotion that was quite powerful and one that I, I, I hadn't encountered before, but it made complete sense. Uh, so yeah, shame too. I was recording in St. Anne's and had one day free, so I told my father I'd be back in December. And he said, December? No, I want to see my son, Tony. We in August. Everything is symbolic in literature. The dust at dry noon in Sambuco, the small birds within the emptiness of the cricket field, heat 
burning water into sound, tall jungle. My father appeared through curtains, thin with eyes that now saw past the limits of ours. The impish swirl of his laughter was gone. In the photographs I took that afternoon, he seemed to be leaning away, leaning as if from life, from love, in shame. And there's actually a, a photograph that I took on that day, which is in the book. You can have a look at it after, which you can see the leaning away. It's probably, it's, that's the power of putting photographs in a, in a poetry book. Um, this is Jogi Road. Jogi Road is a poem about my mother and my father. It's the only memory I have of them together. They broke up when they were really young, early in their relationship. They didn't last. They lasted probably about a couple of years. Um, so this is the only memory I have of them physically together. And it's a violent memory, but it's the only one I have. Uh, the poem is also about the, the fallibility of memory, the fact that you, you can think that something happened in a particular way, in a particular place, and then years later realize that it wasn't or still be unsure years later. Jogi Road. From life, from love, in shame. The red sawmill on Jogi Road with cedar grain in its fibrous air, red. The old train track and the bridge where my mother's rage was bruising the dark. Her fingernails ripped at my father's shirt, his face. This is blood. The way he looks away, then down with open palms as if in resignation. But memory has a curious sting. The red sawmill was not on Jogi Road, but on Silver Mill. And in the savannah, there were five salmon trees which cried when cut, not six. My father held me over his shoulder that night. No, I was looking up from the road. Hmm. So, yeah. So beautiful to um, have the experiences I know some of us have of reading these poems to ourselves, maybe reading them aloud and then to hear you reading them. So thank you, thank you very much for that. So sonnets, you said that you sort of started with that intention of, of um, working within the sonnet yeah. form. But, you know, it's interesting because I think when, when we think about form in poetry, the sonnet is one of the, the, the forms that people can name and mm -hmm. that people might have familiarity with, might have studied at school and so on. But it's also, it has a lot of rules to it. And it, I think it is very much associated with the kind of English literary canon. Yeah. So it struck me when I was thinking about sonnets in this book, First of all, how how much how hard it is for a poet to work within form and to create all of the things that we just heard that the the the, the rhythm of it, the naturalness of it, the way that that suits that that poem and those images perfectly. But also, there's a sense of the rules there. So it feels to me as though the sonnet or the form is an inheritance, mm -hmm. formally in the same way that family experiences and inheritance in terms of subject matter. Okay. I'm just interested in, you know, the many different kinds of sonnets in the book and how you arrived at those. Well, the sonnet is, um, is an interesting form. It's, it's probably the only uh, poetic form that has big well, except the haiku. The haiku is similar. The, the, the sonnet has become more than just a poem. You know, over the years, it's taken on, uh, it's taken on this sort of presence and a resonance in people's lives. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's become more than just a poem. So people recognize the feeling of a sonnet in different things, in things beyond poetry. Mm. You, can, you, know, you can detect the feeling of a sonnet in music. You know, if you look at the structure of a, of a pop song, we have the verse, the, the intro, the verse, the chorus, verse, the chorus, the middle eight, which is kind of a volta. Yeah. And then the chorus at the end. So you see it a lot in, you know, even the way the body is built, the physical mm. body. If you stretch your hands up, the, the volta is at, your, is at your waist, you know. Um, and we notice it a lot in, in art and photography. So people talk of the sonnet as being more, you know, when you say it's a sonnet, it, it means that it's more, it's a feeling, it's a thing. And that thing is essentially a discourse, is the way that we engage with an argument in the way we, we say, okay, this is what I think, here's my evidence, but actually, maybe I'm thinking about this in the wrong way, or maybe, maybe you know, and that is human. That, that sort of rhetoric is, is a very human way of processing things. So that's why I think the sonnet becomes more of an inheritance. It's, it's not just a poetic form. It's a, it's a very human way of thinking about the world and thinking about interaction with people. I don't know if that answers your question. Kind of, I'm sort of mm. rambling on, but yeah. Mm, no. um, yeah, so the sonnet has, has become more than just a poem. And for Caribbean poets or black poets, um, we are writing within a tradition and having respect for the form, but also... Uh, finding a way to articulate our own experiences and our own voices within a form, you know, and that is a revolutionary work. It's, you know, it's the mm. work of revolution, literary revolution. Um, but also, I mean, you know, I started writing the book in strict form because in order to break the rules, you need to know what the rules are. So mm. I, I, I kind of had to write in the strict form, but eventually the voice and the poems and my father's voice and his spirit said, you can't put me in this box. I, mm. You know, it's, this is not natural. And it, it kind of broke me out of the form. You know, there's a, a poet from Barbados called Kemal Braithwaite who's written a book about um, language in the Caribbean. And he says that the, the, the hurricane does not roar in pentameter. <laughs> you know, yeah. so as Caribbean people, we have to find a more natural way of writing. But the sonnet allows you to do that. It allows you to break the rules. Yeah, I feel as though the sonnet's always had that subversive kind of vibe to it because yeah. it's an import from Italy. Yes. And right from the start, you know, in, you know, there's the sonnets, we think of Shakespeare's sonnets or something. Right from the start, you know, even Shakespeare in Sonnet 130 or something, it's like, well, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. There's always that kind of slightly contentious feeling to it. And yes. I love that the Volta is, the Volta allows you to establish something and then say, as you say, no, I'm not certain about this. Or here are the memories, but memory's fallible, so it actually yeah. isn't like that. And I love that. It's well, you, yeah. uh, much more open to, to be uncertain. Yeah, the, the, it's an interesting history. You know, the, the sonnet, yes, yeah, it is Italian in, in root, you know, like 14th century, 13th century, actually 14th century. Um, but when it was first written, it was a lyrical poem in which a poet was just expressing love, love that usually was not fulfilled in some way. So there was a sadness and a melancholy to the poem. But something happened when it was translated into English. Thomas Wyatt was one of the first people that translated it into English, and something happened. I don't know if this English personality attacked the sonnet and made it more, <laughs> of, a, more of an argument, more of a, an argument in the debate with a 
not just with the object of love, but with the audience as well, as if the writer was, as if Wyatt was saying, well, you know, yeah, I love this woman, but you know, she's not that great, and you know, <laughs> I don't know, what do you think, you know, I, you know it, and, and then to have a conclusion at the end. So it became this mm. space for argument and debate mm. and rhetoric mm. in a way that in the early Italian sonnets, like, you know, by Lentini and Petrarch, it's more about this forlorn sense of, of loss, of love, and, um, but yeah, so the yeah. English are responsible for the way we understand the sonnet. I think it works. I, th I think it's, it's a great form for exploring your own ideas about something and, and uh, arguing with yourself almost, you know. Yeah, and, and as you say, you know, there's been, there's been lots of arguments with the sonnet. So yeah. something like, you know, Terence Hayes and American sonnets, which is like, you know, well, this sonnet is kind of a prison that I have to work my way out of in yeah. some way. Yeah. Or Jericho yeah. Brown, who takes the, kind of like it's the ghost of the sonnet, as some people might know, and it's kind of like, so there's a bit of a sonnet there, but it's also his mm. own form. Mm. And I feel as if that's, that's a kind of argument yeah. that, that is about an argument with that what, what, as, what, what position you're supposed to take in relation to that. Yeah. And I guess part of that is also, um, in terms of Caribbean poetries, um, standard English and the imposition of standard English mm -hmm. as, well, this is the correct way to speak. Mm -hmm. and, but that's not... So, you know, how you, how you work with that. I'm interested yeah. in the Creole and the, all of the rhythms, which I think we could hear in that poem, and syntax, which isn't necessarily standard, in, yeah. uh, standard English. Well, you know, luckily, I mean, as a, as a Caribbean poet, as a Trinidadian poet, I have access to not just standard English. I mean, standard English is great, but I have access to Creole. I have access mm. to a Trinidadian rhythm, a Trinidadian mm. way of speaking. Um, and that means that I can infiltrate and subvert yeah. the, the English language. But at the same time, um, Derek Walcott, who's a St. Lucian poet, some people might have heard of Derek Walcott, he's got this really amazing quote where, you know, he's been asked the same thing, you know, how do you as a Caribbean poet approach standard English? Why do you choose to write in standard English, you know? And he said that the, the English language doesn't belong to anybody, it belongs to the imagination, you know? Yeah and that he, as a Caribbean poet, doesn't feel any sort of inhibition to try to write as well as the greatest of English mm. poets, you know. And I'm like that as well. I think that, you know, yes, I'm a Caribbean poet, but I can, I can the language is, is you know, mm. I'm entitled to use whatever language I mm. wish, mm. you know. Yeah, and it's the bringing together of all of that. What are the, yeah. what are the best elements of this for your Absolutely. work? So the subject of this work, I guess, um, you know, it, that these are sonnets for Albert, and Albert, you know, is this figure who emerges really beautifully from the book. Um, as you say, there, there are photographs, and I think um, I find it just very moving that there are these, this handful of photographs, mm -hmm. and that you don't gloss those, that you just have a date and a place, and that often they sit opposite the, the, a, a particular poem or a particular poem has arisen yeah. from them, as with Jogi Road. Yeah. Um, but fathers, it's a, it's a kind of a difficult subject. It's a subject a lot of people have written about, mm -hmm. but I think particularly when the relationship hasn't been straightforward, as was the case with your father. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about you know, as a, as a kind of a project, a poetic project, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a kind of an out-there poetic project, it's a poetic yeah. project that you had to do that was kind of visited on you in a yeah. way. It was your inheritance. Yeah, yeah. Fathers are curious creatures, I think. <laughs> um, I think my fa a little bit of background, you know, because my, my dad was an interesting character. He was very um, 
very charismatic, um, handsome, charismatic, uh, full of presence, funny. Um, but he was a terrible father. Absolutely, he was, I don't, you know, I don't think I can even, many of us can even call him a father as such. I guess he was a father, but he wasn't a dad. He was, my father um, and my mom got together when they were really young, as I was saying. I know my mom was about 18 when she had me. Um, they got together, she got pregnant, they got married three months after, then they broke up. <laughs> uh, I was born, they broke up, they separated. My mom went to live with my father, with her father. Uh, and then she and my dad got together again, and she got pregnant again. And my father kind of was going to throw her out of the house and said, you know, if you, you can stay, but you gotta get, you got to get rid of one of these children. And I was the one that was sent to live with my grandmother. Um, but yeah, so she and my dad had that really fractious kind of relationship. But my father stayed in my life intermittently because I was living with his mom. So I would get to see him once or twice a year if I was lucky. Um, sometimes the years would, a couple of years would pass and I wouldn't see him. It's very interesting. Um, but I loved him even so because he was, I guess because I was living with my grandmother and she loved him, that love just rubbed off on me. And he was this almost mythological figure for many years. Um, he was amused in a way. He was like, you know, this really charismatic man that would turn up and I write about it. You know, actually I could read a Read a point. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, fathers are interesting, but he was very guarded and you know wore mask. I could feel that I couldn't really get to an understanding of him. Um, so this, yeah, this is a poem about him visiting. Light, light, fill the air around these houses. May my grandmother continue to water her roses and touch the aloe fronds in her forever time. Light. As you lit the morning, my father arrived unexpectedly in his new Hillman Hunter. And Mammy ran into the yard to embrace him. And until my grandfather put wire around the veranda, I could sit and swing my legs off the banister or from the garden spy up the thighs of my father's new girlfriend as she laughed with ankles crossed as Albert molded his mother's anthuriums. My grandmother fried fish. We ate. She was happy. Even as she knew that later that afternoon, my father would be gone again into that gone momentum. So, yes, the personal is the universal, I think. And it, it, you know, I was able to write these poems in this really personal way because I know that uh, one of the things I learned as a poet is that, or as a writer in general, is that the, the personal is the universal. The more personal and honest and open and real you are in your work, it's the more people you reach, the more mm. people that are affected by the work. When you try to hide that and to write more generally for everybody and feel that you can aff affect everyone by just being general, it never works. In order to really affect the reader, you have to, be, you have to give up your secrets. You know, this, the things that you want to hide, hmm. the things you're ashamed to say, like the fact that my father was ashamed of dying, stuff like that is, is the thing that makes a great literature, the things you want to hide. So, yeah. So, I mean, I just feel as though I want to say at this point, thank you for that because 
I don't think that's, I think it's hard won. And I think there's an incredible generosity in that because it means presenting yourself in the poem mm -hmm. and present, you know, how you, well, first of all, presenting yourself in the poem with all of that uncertainty yeah. and with your, the whole range of feelings. And I think it is kind of, there is something in us as poets that it would be easier to be able to talk about the father out there yeah. and what he did wrong and yeah. so on. But to actually kind of have that dynamic of that relationship, I think, is extraordinarily generous. And I think I, I think it's really fascinating, that paradox, that in giving so much of the details of mm -hmm. your own experience, it does have this incredible... It opens it to people to find their own experience there, yeah. even though... Um, so certainly, for, you know, for me as a reader, I, there's a lot that's, that is very unknown to me in terms of, of the details of that, but sure. emotionally it feels very true. So I think that's, I mean, that's what I look for when I'm reading and I really, yeah. I really appreciate it when I find it. The other thing that comes, that strikes me is that a word, a very loaded kind of word, and that's the word forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the different experiences that you and your brother had. And then there are your father's other children who you didn't really know so well. But with you and your brother, you had these very different experiences, which mm -hmm. resulted, um, as you describe, in there's very different kind of reckonings with that. And I, I, I find it really, it's, it's very poignant for me that you kind of took on the, your, the lens or, you, you know, as you say, that love of your grandmother rubbed off. Mm -hmm. That's her cherished child. So yeah. there's a particular vantage point that's very different from a child and mm -hmm. what a child needs. I suppose as a, as a mother at a certain point, um, you know, you expect your children to become more independent and to go off and then to come back for these special visits. But that's not what the child's kind of needs or expects, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. So forgiveness, and then how that's a very different for your brother who mm. there are moments in the poems where he will put that aside, but has really has wrestled with that quite yeah. differently. Yeah. Well, my brother grew up with my mom. I mean, my, my dad, um, after having me and my uh, brother, after having me and then my brother a year and a half after, they split up and my dad went on to have probably about 12 more kids with different women. My dad was, a, I, I told you, he was not a great father. Um, so he had, yeah, he had a lot of children and he was not a father, a real father to any of them, never really lived with them and took care of them. Just, I, maybe he was sort of, uh, maybe there was something sort of mentally or psychologically preventing him from commitment and settling down. So he wasn't able to do that. Um, so he had yeah, a lot of children. My mom had a few of her own. My mom had six children. Um, but, uh, you know, my brother grew up with my mother and my mom wasn't a big fan of my dad. So mm -hmm. he, my brother inherited a particular contempt in his life mm -hmm. for my father, which as he grew into a man himself, decided that he needed to adjust, he needed to address and he needed to confront and he needed to speak to my father and make peace with him. But at that time, my father rejected him. Mm -hmm. My father rejected him, didn't want to get into any sort of discussion with him about it, and would be very inconsistent in his life, you know. Um, but sadly, or ironically, my brother was the, the person that went to him when he was dying and spent the last hours with him. And, you know, yeah. So, so. generosity, <laughs> generosity again, and the generosity with which you depict your brother's reaching out. Yeah. But it's a gesture, it's kind of comes through the book, and I think that's an, it's kind of takes us to the idea of music and poetry, um, because that to me is one of the motifs. It's just one of those sort of quiet motifs in the book is your brother's 
trying to, you know, that ambivalence. Yeah. But those gestures where he, you, you know, and your father leaning away is also a gesture, but also your brother yeah. reaching out. And yeah. I feel like you're in this, you occupy this interesting ground in between, which mm -hmm. just must take so much strength yeah. um, to hold those those different positions. Yeah. But yeah. it takes us to poetry as well as being a poet. And I think we can hear this when you're reading the poems, um, you're a musician. Um, I highly recommend... Um, listening to Anthony's music. Um, and I don't think, it's not sort of as though that's a huge shock for a poet, because I think for, for me, poetry is closer to music in some ways mm. um, than prose. But you work with, um, you know, jazz and the improvisational forms, and it feels to me as though, thinking about what we were just talking about, about the different family members, it's a little bit like um, playing jazz where, you know, someone has a solo, mm -hmm. and it's the work of everyone around that is to scaffold that, but also yeah. to be very responsive yeah. to that. Yeah. And then there'll be yeah. another solo. And in a way, the book is a little bit like that because mm -hmm. there are portraits of different experiences, your father's experience mm -hmm. with the, with the um, 9-11, for example, in New yeah. York or something. It just is a little solo and then mm -hmm. there's a backdrop to that. Mm -hmm. But um, so working with improvisational music, jazz, the way certain motifs return as an echo or they're, they're, they're mm -hmm. considered in different ways by the different instruments and the different yeah. musicians and so on. Could you talk a little bit about working between the two forms and perhaps what they have in common for you? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I came to, to, music, I came to poetry through music, you know. My love for writing verse or whatever came from a, a love of, of trying, to, well, trying to write song lyrics, trying to write songs when I was like 11 years old. I decided I was going to write pop songs and... Um, that became a practice and obsession, and it became poetry. Uh, so for me, it's all the, the verse and, and uh, poetry. You're right. The poetry is a musical form. Poetry mm. is, is is music. I mean, the, the sonnet itself. You know, sonnet uh, sonnet comes from the Italian word sonetto, which means little song. So poetry is really closely tied to to music. You know, we speak about lyrics in both genres. We speak about rhythm, mm. meter very similar, very close. Um, so, yeah, there's never really a, a question about it for me. The poem has to be melodic. Mm. It has to swing. Mm. It has to feel musical. It has to resolve at the end on a, on a note that makes sense. You know, I'm sure people that write poetry would know that that, that last word of a poem has to be absolutely right. Mm. And if it's not, you know it straight away mm. that it's not right. It just doesn't feel right. Mm. And it's, it's because it's a musical motif. It's a note that you're looking for. It's a sound. Mm. And sometimes you, you know the sound and you have to find the word after. You have to like, I know what the sound yeah. I want here, but what's the word? And you go through a list of words in your mind that sound like that. And then you say, ah, that's the word. And it's a sound thing. Mm. So, yeah, poetry is very close to music for me. I've never separated the two. Even prose, my prose is, is yeah. musical, you know. Yes, and thinking about um, uh, an example of that too, um, Kitsch, you know, which, which brings a lot of these same qualities in, yeah. but, but also methodologically is, is similar. So that's mm -hmm. a, a, a fictionalised biography, is that the right kind of way to describe it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a fictional biography. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so again, you're working with, some evidence, patchy evidence, mm -hmm. and then what what fills that out is the yeah. imagination. But yes. also, it's the it's the life of a jazz musician. So, yes. um, you know, again, there's, there's this kind of a formal way that there's mm -hmm. an acknowledgement of that in 
certain types of rhythms of the yeah. sentence and so on. Absolutely. Um, I was thinking about the ending and I'm thinking about working in, in um, with poets, other poets and my, and my own poems and, you know, you can kind of have a, you can have a last line but then you realise it's out of, out of tune with the mm -hmm. whole poem and you can be so wedded to that but yes. Um, yes. actually as long as it's out of tune, it's out of tune. Right. It's like yeah. something, someone's playing in the wrong key or something. Yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Mm. I was going to say I was going to share something actually which I, I don't get to read very often which is something in Creole which is it, well it's it's the sound of the poem is very different and I, I want to share it because it, a lot of people might not have heard it, a Trinidadian accent yeah, or a Trinidadian way of reading the thing is the the actual uh, lexicon the words are standard English but the way they're put together the syntax is mm. I guess uh, West African syntax, so it, it sounds very different. I just want to share it quickly. And it's called Tina. So Tina was my sister, who wasn't my father's child, but they were very close. They loved each other for some reason. Um, they were really f fond of each other, and they died within a couple of years of each other. Tina. Oh, I got to say as well, there's a word in here that I, I had a big argument with my editors about, it, and it's the word quite. And in Trinidad, we use quite to mean distance. So if I say quite in, quite in Melbourne, it means all the way in Melbourne. You know, it's far, you know. So when I say quite here, it means distance. But the editor was saying, oh, um, it, it, that doesn't make the same meaning in English. It, people might think that it's a mistake and it's a, you meant to say quiet. Uh, but no, I insisted that it stayed. Tina, hear this one. The big man surveyed a house. He said, okay, all you will have to break down to build back that kitchen. While they're building, them pillars could support the bedroom. You and your daughter could stay in there. The living room need new flooring. Tiantech not connecting electric until you fix that roof. The wiring faulty, fire. You're talking good money, material, cement, labor. But Tina, you can't live like this with termite in ruins. He had left quite Santa Cruz to go to Five Rivers to see what could be done for Tina and Trish. Tina, not Albert's daughter, but Baptist, no Baptist, and she have his last name. She dies two years after he does. Serpent didn't possess her womb was stomach cancer. And two weeks after, the house she suffered to save fell down. Hmm. Well, that is just, it's so wonderful. I've got to say, that sounded much better hearing that than it did in my head when I was reading it. Um, are you, have you recorded the whole book? I have, yeah. There's an audio book. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. It's an, it's an That's audio the next book. thing to you can find it in audio to. Something else that strikes me and th that we've talked about a little bit is the fact that you, you position yourself as a son in the collection, but also as a father. Yeah. So absolutely. again, it would be easy to keep, have the father as a kind of slightly othered yeah. subject, whether yeah. it's hagiographical or whether it's demonising the father. Those are fairly standard yeah. postures that we see in yeah. poetry. Yeah. Um, but you also kind of bring all of that back. And I love the poem Memory Ghost, where you talk about, well, you, where you bring that back to yourself and think, well, what am I doing as a father? And those last three lines have really stayed with me. I hope that there is time still to shape the ghost that will enter their memory. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and to me, again, you know, I've talked about this sort of series of very generous, compassionate gestures throughout the collection, and the, and the you know incredible kind of emotional work of that. Yeah. And one of that, one of those is turning the you know the gaze back on yourself as a father. Yeah. Could you talk about a little bit about that? You know, writing this as a father about a father. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know. <laughs> um, it, the book is also about mortality, you know, mm. it's also about you know, my father's mortality, my own mortality, everyone's mortality. The fact that, you know, as I say in one of the poems, um, I was having a conversation with my aunt at her, at her 70th birthday party, and my father died recently. And she said, you know, you have to forgive your father. Your father was on his own loop, and he did what he could do, and he was on a cycle, and I'm on a cycle, and you are also on a particular circle. Um, and that kind of put things in perspective. So a lot of, a few of the, in a few of the poems, I'm kind of resonating with that idea that this is a circle and it's a cycle and my father is gone and I'm a father now and I also have to, to shape the memory yeah. of who I am to my children um, and hopefully be a better father than my father was to mm. them, which I am, mm. obviously. I, you know, mm. I only have two kids. I don't have 12 kids with mm. different mm. moms and mm. running about, you know. Mm. So... Already, I am way much of a, a better father than he was, you know. Um, so yeah, there's a few points in the book where I I I I I, I sort of foreground this idea of, you know, that I am also a father and that I am also having to address these issues and about my own mortality and the fact that, you know, it's important to be aware of how you affect your children or how mm. they see you because mm. when you are gone all they have is this what I call a, a memory ghost mm. it's a ghost you know and that is important you know my father was was terrible but I loved him um, I loved him because he was he was a, he was a, he was a, uh, an interesting lovable person um, but not everyone is able to do that some people have unresolved issues with their fathers and they Un there's a lot of unforgiveness but for me it was important to forgive him and move on and that becomes kind of part of the model of what you're doing for your children yeah. um and again i i think there's just like an enormous emotional courage in that mm. um but there's even more emotional courage in the fact that you 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 do look at that in that mm. light another question that i would just like to ask is that you so you teach creative writing yeah um and I'm wondering a little bit about that. You know, what are your principles as a teacher of creative writing? What sorts of things do you see and what, what advice do you find yourself giving to poets? Because I know there are a lot of people here who would like to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I, oh, God, I've been teaching for so long, for a long time now, that um, the, the sort of basic principle that I, that I use to, to teach creative writing is, um, comes from, I think there's a, a quote from probably Michelangelo or somebody like that, a sculptor, great classical sculptor, um, who when asked how they managed to carve these beautiful um, uh, sculptures from these stone, says that the, the statue was already in there. All I had to do was shave away all the stuff that was around it to reveal it. And that's kind of a principle that I use for teaching creative writing. Mm. So by mm. the time students come to me, I mean, I teach people, you know, university age. Mm. By the time they get to me, they've already had lots of stuff piled on them that stops them from being creative. You know, as we get older, 
more and more layers of you know society and responsibility and and tradition and history and literature history and all that literary history kind of get piled on you so you feel very overwhelmed to try to write a poem you're like how can I write a poem when Shakespeare wrote such great ones you know how can I do this Um, and my job is to as I see it is to take these away from them to take all these layers of resistance and Mm. leave them really bare and naked you know and force them to ride in that vulnerable position and then to be surprised at how great it is. Mm. And then they go, oh, right. So I could write about that time I I got my heart broken and I I, I drank six bottles of wine and and ate uh, six pots of pot noodle (laughs) and lay Mm. on the floor Mm. for 12 hours. And I'm like, yeah, that's what you need to write about. You know, not, I was so heartbroken, I felt sad. It's not great. You know, tell me what you ate, what you drank, you know? (laughs) And then they do that and they're like, oh, wow. Because by the time you write it and share it, there's a weight that's lifted off. Mm. It's no longer yours. So, yeah, it's getting people to that point of being able to be vulnerable. Um, In poetry especially, fiction is a different thing. Fiction is more, there's more involved in terms of uh, there's particular tropes and particular conventions that you do need to know and you do need to follow mm. uh, in order to write effectively. But poetry, mm. especially at the beginning for students at that age, is really about peeling layers away. You know? uh, yeah, and it's almost when you say that, I'm almost thinking of the, that block of marble. It's also the poet, you know, so we start off and we have a whole the blocks yeah. of marble and, in fact, there's a poet in there. But the marbling <laughs> yeah. or the kind of, you know, exactly. they're kind of encrusted exactly. in all of that. Yeah. So it's yeah, a lot exactly. of it is quite exactly. subtle, yeah. um, you know, psychological is probably not the right word, yeah. but it is actually just... Uh, and it's also holding space for, yes, that's your particular experience. And yes. I think you, have, you offer a really wonderful Absolutely. example... Um, of that. Um, I think this might be a good time to go to audience questions. Maybe this first person in the middle here. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, your uh, relationship with fatherhood. Yeah. Um, and I guess my question is, if your own children became artists in some form, how would you like them to remember you and their kind of artwork? <laughs> and maybe is there a particular <laughs> medium that you'd like them to gradu- uh, gravitate towards? Oh, gosh. I mean, my, my um, I try not to get involved or to... I mean, you know, I try not to impose anything on, on the kids, you know. My my oldest daughter, um, because of my work in music, became a... You know, at one point she wanted to be a musician, but now she works for a record label, and she does really well, you know, and she's, she's really happy in that post. So she's gravitated towards a music thing. My youngest daughter likes to write, so she's... You know, that's one of her main things. She, she loves to write and write and write. But I never get involved in it. I never get involved in, and try to push her in any direction. Um, I let them evolve in their own way. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I do it. If she comes to me and says, you know, what do you think of this story or what do you think of this, then I'll, I'll offer some help. Um, but I think, you know, if she becomes a writer, that's fine. But because I've been a, I can tell her, Okay, uh, maybe poetry, you're not going to make a lot of money from this. Um, Try writing a novel as well or something, you know. So because I have industry knowledge, I can guide her to have a kind of successful, economically successful career, hopefully. So another question in the first row here. How important is it that you create a kind of like symbolic architecture where the form 
concept and content are kind of married together. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you're really cognizant of or mm -hmm. does it kind of just develop naturally? Yeah, that's a good question. The, mm -hmm. the, the actual answer, the secret is that uh, form forces you, the sonnet form, because it's, it's rigid. It's supposedly rigid. I mean, I break a lot of rules in, in the form, but writing in a form like that forces you to think about everything you have to say and to make sure that every word is valid and every idea earns its place. So um, in a way, if you have all these feelings and all these emotions about a particular moment or a particular memory of someone, if I say to you, okay, I'm giving you five words to write this down, those five words are going to be really potent and you're going to end up, you know, if you do it properly with a really strong, short poem. So in the same as uh, writing a sonnet, you have 14 lines, you have a volta at some point. It forces you to contain and to edit your emotions into a shape that makes sort of wholesome sense. Because the, the sonnet is, is a very um, natural, uh, mathematically sound form. You know, it, it's related to pi, it's related to the 70-30 division. Uh, that we notice in the world, that we notice in photographs, that we notice in nature. And there's a wholeness to it. And it forces you to put your emotions into that context. And that's why it's so resonant with a lot of people. It feels natural. And also the iambic pentameter, mm -hmm. you know, ti-dum, 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 mm -hmm. ti-dum. It's a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And people read it and feel, oh, why am I so affected? It's because it's affecting you physiologically as well mm -hmm. as, you know, intellectually. You know, it, these are the mysteries of the... Poem, poetry is magic. Mm. It's alchemy. Yeah. It's magic to hear the heartbeat when you were reading it because mm -hmm. I think there's another way that you... Sometimes people working with form who sort of go, OK, I've got to go... Uh, 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 and it just feels like, yeah. I don't want to work in that because it's too constrained, but actually yeah. you can hear it as the heartbeat. You can hear yeah. it as a rhythm that comes yeah. from the body rather than yeah. the head. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't pay too much attention to iambic pentameter. Um, but because you, I've read a lot of sonnets and, and write a lot, it come, it's natural, yeah. it's, it's part of the, the architecture, yeah. the poem. Yeah, there was a masterclass just in hearing that, masterclass in metre. <laughs> I especially loved what you were saying about the hurricane mm -hmm. um, and wondered if you are leaning, I guess, like into body and into place and into landscape, how, how much is it sort of like conscious being decided that you are like breaking form in that way and how much is it kind of just like naturally leaning in? It's natural. It's just natural. You know, form is, you know, as Allen Ginsberg says, form is what happens. Mm. You know, you, you do your thing and then the form happens. Mm. Um, which is kind of unfair because, you know, I knew I was writing sonnets and I knew I wanted to write a particular uh, length of poem and sonnet. But in terms of how they are approached, I just, yeah, I just did it. I just... Uh, the poems come in the order that they occurred to me, you know. Yeah. There's no real sort of preconceived, you know, idea of how I should write it. You write it and you leave it and then you edit it. After a while, you come back to it and edit it and hopefully the resonance, the original resonance of the poem is still there. That's how it works for me at least. I don't know. What do you think your father would have thought of the book? Did it, or was he still alive and did you show him anything or... Did he see anything? Actually, I could, I'll, I'll finish. When I get to finish, I'll read a poem about that. My dad wasn't, he wasn't really interested in the work. He was more interested in the idea of me as a writer and the idea that I was 
this writer that was living in the UK and that was teaching and you know blah blah blah. He was he was proud of that, but he, he didn't really read the work. He was you know, um, nah nah. He was nah. He was of that generation where oh poetry oh great you know. He was yeah. He didn't really care about the work as such. But the idea of being a writer and a poet that was fascinating to him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He would have. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll read it later. I'll, re- I'll read the poem. I'll read the poem. Have you wrestled with haiku at all? Yeah, I've, I've written a few haikus. I've written a few haikus. It's, it's not a. It's not my go-to form, but you know, I've, I've written a few. You know, I teach it, and um, I love it as a form. Um, but my feelings, my sort of poems so far in my life, has demanded a little bit more space than the haiku gives me. Um, but as an exercise for people that are trying to write and really capture uh, images or ideas, it's a perfect form for that. Yeah, it's, just, it's an amazing form. It's very similar to the high, to the sonnet in that it, there's a turn, there's a the kereji, mm. the, the cutting word is mm. is a is the volta, you know. What are your thoughts on the fine line between writing to heal, writing to comprehend, and writing to publish? Mm-hmm. Are they one of the same? Mm-hmm. Um, no. I don't think they are. I, I don't think uh, I don't think writing is is therapy. Mm. I don't see writing as therapy. I think therapy, you know, while there is a, maybe a benefit in writing, you know, if you've gone through some sort of trauma, writing it all down might be helpful. But that's for you. That's a personal mm. thing that you do for yourself. Mm. It's not really something that you share with people. So it's mm. it might be as a process good for your own healing to write it down. Um, uh, poetry or publishing poetry is something that you're doing for other people. You know, I'm, I've written this book, but it's not really for me. The book is for people that have similar experiences or it's for my father's children, you know, to read it and to feel something and to get something from it. It's not for me. So that's the difference between writing um, for therapy and writing for publishing. For publishing is publish, public. You're giving it it's to the, the people that read it. Therapy is you, you know. Um, so there's a different process. When I write, I always interweave my South Asian heritage into my writing. Mm-hmm. But I've received pushback from editors when I infiltrate the ah. English language with that. How do you suggest mm-hmm. to go back to the editors with that? Yeah, it's really tricky. But, you know, um, I live in the UK and we have a, a historical precedent of people doing that, of, of writers from Jamaica or from Trinidad writing in what we call Creole. The trick is to, to write using English lexicon, to write using standard English words and standard English you know, punctuation or whatever, but to arrange the syntax in a way that it, 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 it sounds different. And people have done that in the UK and in, and in Caribbean literature for a long time. Um, the problem begins when you try to, when you spell things in a different way, or when you introduce words that are foreign to the English language. Do you gloss, do you put them in a glossary, or do you, what? I don't use a glossary because, you know, when I was reading, I don't know, um, James Joyce, he didn't give me a glossary for, mm. for Ulysses, he didn't give mm. me a glossary. These people don't give me glossaries, so why should I? So. It's, mm. it's a political thing to say, mm. I'm insisting that this is the word and these are the words that I'm using and it's up to you to figure it out as a reader, mm. you know. Mm. Um, 
That's the political stance to take. Yeah. And I'd just add, as an editor, you know, thank you very much for asking that question, because that is one of the most live and important questions in Australian poetry at the moment about the languages that people speak. And again, standard English and this certain kind of literary English that's imagined as the language of poetry. But in fact, we have so many different languages mm -hmm. and many people are bilingual, trilingual, you know, so that it's a question, it's a really important question. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for all of the questions. Um, and I did want to allow some time. So if we could just maybe have a couple more poems before we end, that would be. Yes. And thanks very much, everybody. Those were really great questions. I'm going to, I'm going to be mulling over those. Absolutely. So I'll read uh, a poem, which is about my father's response to mm. my work. This is called Poetry. When I give my father a copy of my book, he looks at the cover and says, that is you and Dennis, where is that, Ramki Trace? He fans the pages with his thumb. I watch until he pauses near the center to draw his head back to fix his eye to read. Then another few lines before turning to the back and scanning the surface of the, of the sentences there. The bio and the blurb are the things which make him smile. <laughs> I don't think he ever read the poems, but somebody told him that I had written about his travels in the spirit world to the Guinea coast, to China in search of secret colors. And driving from the beach one day, he said, I hear you're putting all my business on the internet. <laughs> then he laughed, but nothing else was said. <laughs> And I will, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I will finish with, uh, actually I might have time to do a couple, but um, a few years ago I was in uh, Washington at a conference and, um, and this was many years, this was years before my dad died, uh, but it was a point where I began to, to question um, whether there was a relationship between my father's absence and my own creativity and the way that I turned to language as a way of you know, articulating that experience. And uh, there's a poem in here called Breakfast in DC, which I wanted to read. Breakfast in DC. That night, after the conference in DC, we broke free of post-colonial tautology to gather in the small room of the writer in residence. We were young scholars, poets, novelists, a journalist. We drank white wine warm and nodded to Neo Soul. I saw them recoil from the British resident when in the marrow dark of 3 a.m. he rightly said that there was nothing like the sweet kick of crack cocaine. At dawn, we drove out in the doctoral candidate's car. We saw the Doric pillars of the Lincoln Memorial glowing in the unclear distance. Then the white gasp of the monument. We ordered pancakes with blueberries at Pete's on 2nd Street and shared our commonalities. And what we shared besides our blackness was that in our childhoods, our fathers had all been absent. And I will finish with a poem called The Tumuli in Santa Cruz, which is about my father's funeral. A tumuli, for people that don't know, tumuli are the mounds that form over graves, the dirt mounds. So a tumulus is one, tumuli is plural. 
the tumuli in Santa Cruz. Fire for you, and the mothers of the church lit candles upon your breastbone. Fire was lit even in the hole to purify the earth to receive you. They poured flame from brass goblets of croton and pink exora and swung a chant to kill death. O oh, death, draw out your sword. Your body lay in the sweet brown. The red church on the hill grew nervous in the noon. The long hearse purred in the sloping yard. Perfume sang from the bosoms of ants and far cousins. Look out over mountains. Look out where rail trees are planted on tumuli of bones, like ladders for spirits to cross into heaven. Oh, fold me in and fly me around the valley. We shall all be rooted in this well of ours eventually. <laughs> Anthony, thank you. thank you so much for reading those poems. Thank you so much for travelling all the way here and for a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.